Hey listener, thank you for joining us for this installment of the Restoration Project's weekly podcast. We are currently studying the book of Ruth. Many people approach this well-known story as a romance between Ruth and Boaz, but it's a bit more than that. A lot more, actually. It's a story of grief and loss, bitterness and resentment. It's a story of including the stranger. It's a story of the radical and costly commitment modeled by some of the book's main characters and God's unending faithfulness even in the midst of tragedy. Ultimately, it's a story of redemption and restoration and hope. There's a lot to consider in this beautiful and ancient work of art. And as we hope to make clear, it points us ahead to the death and resurrection of Jesus. Enjoy the episode. We are glad that you guys are with us this evening. If you guys are new with us, thank you for being here. Thank you for trusting us. Thank you for moving from wherever point A was to come into this space. Sometimes I know there's a lot of barriers and there's a lot of weight and baggage that comes along with just trying out a new church. Um, I was talking to somebody just last night, actually, on Facebook Messenger and had uh, initiated some kind of contact. It sounds like a, a... Martian invasion of some sort, but I had initiated contact with this individual um, and expressed to them that there was no pressure in showing up here because I know that sometimes it's difficult. Uh, But whatever your story is and uh, whatever has brought you into this place tonight, uh, we're thankful. And my prayer is that God will meet you wherever you are. If this is your first time, then you have missed seven weeks leading up to the beautiful climax of our series on the book of Ruth. Tonight is the last sermon on the book of Ruth. And isn't it beautiful to be in a book that only takes us eight weeks to get from the beginning to the end, as opposed to say, oh, I don't know, 55 or so when we're doing the book like, oh, I don't know, the book of Mark, perhaps. Isn't it nice just to be able to crank one out in a couple months? But I don't know about you guys, but I've had a lot of fun going through this book. Again, this is a familiar story for churched people. Uh, But hopefully we've been looking at it from a different lens. We have not been scared of the ancient Near Eastern historical context of this story, mainly because I believe that it brings some new truths to light. This is not a romance between Ruth and Boaz, although things did get a little sexy on the threshing room floor. Too much, Tim? Okay. Uh, I, can, I can heed your facial expressions. This is a story of grief. Namely, from the very beginning, we meet Naomi, who is married to a guy named Elimelech. They have two kids named Malon and Kilion. And because there's a famine in the land, they move to the east from Bethlehem into foreign territory, into Moab. For an Israelite at this time, this was like the last ditch effort that you had in order to care for your family. We don't know all the circumstances that went up to this decision, but we have this family leaving Bethlehem and going to Moab. And in the midst of what's recorded as three to five verses in the Hebrew Bible, our Old Testament, Naomi watches her husband die and her two kids die. And she's left virtually alone in a foreign land with her two now daughters-in-law named Ruth and Orpah. And through a series of events, Naomi urges Orpah to go back home because there's nothing that she can do to care for her. But Ruth is determined to stay with Naomi, saying, wherever you go, I will go. 
Your God will become my God. Your people will become my people. So this story is not just a story of grief. It's a story of commitment. And we see that commitment being played out in the lives of some of the book's major characters. We see Ruth and her faithfulness, her commitment to Naomi, saying, I will go wherever you go. And and we even see this kind of transition where Naomi is so overcome with grief that Ruth takes it upon herself to go and to care for their new small family unit. And we see Ruth demonstrating herself to be someone who models what the ancient Israelites would call chesed, this faithfulness and commitment between people. It's also a story of the unending faithfulness of God, even though we haven't really seen God do much of anything. The only thing that we learn about God is in the very beginning where after Naomi has watched her husband die and her two kids die and they're in this foreign territory because of a famine in the land, it says that she hears through the grapevine almost that God has brought food back to Bethlehem. This is one of the only remarks where we hear God is doing something and it's, it's third hand. It's not something that is directly Uh, revealed to Naomi or, or spoken to Naomi. It's just they hear that God is doing this. And tonight we'll see the one thing in the book that God actually is doing. So what we have is Ruth taking care of Naomi and uh, beginning to to fend for the family. And over the last two weeks, what we've seen is Ruth putting herself in a a situation where she can get hitched to a guy named Boaz. You see, in the ancient Near East, it was important for people to kind of marry within the family. So Ruth has lost her husband, Naomi's son, Malon. And now they're looking for the kinsman redeemer who happens to be Boaz, although there's a plot twist. There's somebody closer in line than Boaz. So we see Ruth, and she's getting all pretty, and she's getting all ready to go to the threshing room where her mother-in-law has instructed her to go. And once you see Boaz, once you see him eat and drink and be merry, and when you see him lay down with all of his grain so that nobody steals it, then you go and you lay down next to him and uncover his feet, and he will tell you what to do. However, in the story, Ruth takes the initiative, and when Boaz wakes up, she pretty much immediately says, I am Ruth, I am your servant, please marry me, marry me, marry me. And we see Ruth putting herself in a situation where Boaz is going to take her as his wife, but he has to first confront this other uh, potential redeemer, which we talked about last week. And now, let the wedding bells ring, everyone. The beauty that is the book of Ruth to its conclusion here in chapter 4. Ruth chapter 4, beginning in verse 13, it says, So Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife. He was intimate with her. The Lord let her become pregnant, and she gave birth to a son. The women said to Naomi, May the Lord be blessed, who today hasn't left you without a redeemer. May his name be proclaimed in Israel. Verse 15, He will restore your life and sustain you in your old age. Your daughter-in-law who loves you has given birth to him. She's better for you than seven sons. Naomi took the child and held him to her breast, and she became his guardian. The neighborhood women gave him a name, saying, A son has been born to Naomi. They called his name Obed. He became Jesse's father and David's grandfather. These are the generations of Perez. 
Perez became the father of Hezron, Hezron the father of Ram, Ram the father of Amminadab, Amminadab the father of Nashon, Nashon the father of Salmon, Salmon the father of Boaz, Boaz the father of Obed, Obed the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of David. The word of God for the people of God. And thanks be to God that the technology will work. We are trying something new, as you can see the, the the monitor's there in the back. Okay, so I'm, I'm the weird one in the room, and hopefully this works because this is getting me off my game here, but um, I am the weird one in the room because I love genealogies. Now, I know that when you guys were singing and we transitioned from a song into Tim reading just what appeared to be a list of random names, maybe some of you were sitting there thinking, what's happening and what is the spiritual benefit of what is happening here? But throughout the Bible, we see these genealogies that are filled with meaning and potential theological significance if we understand them correctly in their context. So what I would like to um, bring us to is this one series of, of genealogies in First Chronicles, the book of First Chronicles. The first nine chapters is just one ginormous list of names, and it is beautiful. And I know that when you guys are reading through your Bible in a year, like all of the pious individuals that we have here, and you wake up at four in the morning and you just follow your, your scheduled readings, and when you get to First Chronicles and you get to chapters one through nine and you just see a list of names, what is it that you do? You turn the pages until you get to something other than names, something other than just this list of, of things here. But in order to understand what's going on in these first nine chapters of Chronicles, we have to understand what's going on a little bit behind the scenes. So one of the things that we have not talked about here at TRP is something called the monarchy. This was a time in Israel's history when they, they had kings. There's this whole saga where the people wanted to have a king so they could be like everybody else. And the prophet Samuel said, this is not going to be good. But God said, Samuel, give the people what they want. And it initiated this time in Israel's history called the monarchy where they were ruled by God, yes, but also by human kings, beginning with Saul, who was something of a tragic figure. And we meet Saul in the book of Samuel. Now, what's interesting about Samuel and the book of Kings versus the book of Chronicles, it seems as though it is telling the same exact story, the story of this kingdom and in the book of Samuel and Kings, it kind of retells the monarchy where Israel has a king, but there comes a time through disobedience and through some political measures and through a bunch of different circumstances that are taking place where the kingdom gets split into two, and this is the period known as the divided kingdom. So we have Israel in the north, and we have Judah in the south, and they are two self-sustaining entities with their own kings and their own empires and their own alliances and their own uh, centers of worship. They're kind of existing as two separate kingdoms that have split off from the united monarchy, which was Saul and David and Solomon. Are you with me at least up to this point? So we have two different kingdoms, Israel in the north and Judah in the south. And sometimes these kingdoms are kind of going at it with each other. There's, there's a few texts where Israel is pressuring Judah to form this alliance with them against the other uh, political enemies that are getting ready to invade. There's this whole saga that's going on in Samuel and Kings that we have to understand what's going on in the larger picture of the ancient world. 
But what we see is Israel finally is destroyed by the Assyrians who were the power of the day in 722 BC. And I can even tell right now as I'm just talking and I say something like 722 BC, you guys are fading. And slowly, the soothing sounds of my voice tonight are just making you sink into a deep sleep. Well, wake up, people, because what happens is Israel in the north gets overthrown by Assyria. They go into a period of exile. They get removed from their, their place. And now all we have left is Judah, the last remaining strand of God's people and God's promise. Back up into the book of Genesis, God has promised to give Abraham a land and a people and great kings would come from him. There's these promises that God has with his people. And when Israel is destroyed by Assyria, people begin to start asking some big questions. But Judah doesn't get their act together and they don't do any better. And in 586, they're destroyed by the new world power that is Babylon in 586 BC. Now, this is where the book of Samuel and Kings come into play because they are addressing this moment of exile. It's called the exilic period in, in ancient Israel's history where they're trying to answer the question, what happened? What happened to us that now we're not in the land and we've been removed and we got some people in Babylon and we don't have a lot of people back home and some, the Babylonians, they left the peasants there and the poor folks, it didn't really matter. They just took the elite supposedly. So there were some people there, but this, this ushered in a new period where Israel and Judah no longer had a, a center of worship. They no longer had their, their religious system. And now they're in foreign territory wondering what in the world happened. And the books of Samuel and Kings are trying to answer this question, what happened? One of the underlying currents of these books is sin. And they try to pinpoint the sin that, that led to these, these series of events. Now, what's interesting about this, though, is in the post-exilic period. So people have been in exile. They've been removed from their land, which I cannot stress to you how important of a, of a deal that was because of these promises that people had. They were operating on the assumption that God loved them and God cared for them and they had the promised land. But then when they were removed from this land... They began to look and say, what happened? But what's going on in the post-exilic period after they had been able to go, back to, to go back home? They started asking a different series of questions. They started asking questions like, does God care about us? Are we still in the family? Are we still a part of God's people? And this is why when you flip open Chronicles and you see a list of name that, names that begins with Adam from the very beginning of Israel's story, what the author is trying to do over nine chapters of names and genealogies is to say, you are still in the family and God still has a plan for you. And what do we do? We skip right over that thing. But the theological depth of those first nine chapters of Chronicles is telling a story that God is still invested and involved in his people even though every little bit of the stuff has hit the fan. And now they find themselves back home not knowing if God is still with them or cares for them. And when we see those names, names after names after names leading up to their moment, it's a witness and a testimony to how God is still with these people. And you get that from a genealogy. 
Now tonight, the end of the book of Ruth climaxes with this genealogy as well. Uh, one scholar says the story of Boaz, Ruth, and Naomi, it concludes with the glorious resolution of a fundamental issue in the book, the filling of Naomi's emptiness and the birth of a son through whom the royal line of David will eventually appear. This is the beautiful ending of the book of Ruth, and it has to do with a series of names leading up to David. The way that this text rolls out, we'll just kind of march through it to get to, um, to get to where we're going. It says, so Boaz took Ruth, and this is an ancient Near Eastern way of saying that they became man and wife. It doesn't sound PC for our crowd and our time today, but this was totally kosher back in the day. So Boaz took Ruth, and some people would even say the fact that they add this next clause, and she became his wife, that there's like reciprocal actions from Boaz and Ruth, and it's almost like they had this mutual submission in their marriage. That's probably a bit of, a, of an over-exaggeration, but it is nice that we see two different things happening here. Boaz taking Ruth, and Ruth becoming his wife. But now here's the kicker. He was intimate with her. Now that's not really in the Hebrew text. It's a bit more um, abrupt, if you will. This is a nice euphemism for uh, what's going on here. But he became intimate with her and the Lord let her become pregnant. This is the only text in the book of Ruth where we see direct attribution to God doing something. And what does he do? It literally, it says that he gives to her a conception or a pregnancy. God, in his first major act in this story, allows Ruth to be pregnant. And then it says, and she gave birth to a son. In our context, that's good, but we like girls too. In the ancient Near East, this was like double blessing. Not only was Ruth having a kid, but she was having a son because the line of the family goes through the son. I'm the last James in our side of the, the family, so when we had Abram, I was pretty excited because the line would continue. So even in the 21st century American context, sometimes that means something to us. Now, having said that, we've got two beautiful boys, and I am begging my wife to allow us the privilege. Sarah's saying, please stop. I'd like to have a girl because I would just love to, you know, I would love to hang out with a little girl raise her in the, in the family. Kate's like, move on. Okay. So Boaz was intimate with, with Ruth and the Lord let her become pregnant and she gave birth to a son. Now think about this for a second. Um, Tamar Eskenazi says this verse, it tersely spans about nine months and major events in the protagonist's life. So Boaz takes Ruth, she becomes his wife, and then she has a baby. What happened to the honeymoon phase? You know, like where did where did they go? Did they did they travel? Did they go on a cruise? What's what's happened over these last few months? We don't hear this, and this is typical Hebrew prose. Remember, in the beginning of the book, where it just it goes over ten years, where Naomi and her husband and her sons are in the land over a scope of maybe three to four verses, and here we have one verse where it's saying that uh, Boaz takes Ruth as his wife, and she becomes his wife, and, and they uh, get intimate, and they have a baby. And we don't hear much more about it. But I want you to sit and think for a moment, and I've hinted at it, but what we have is a story of Ruth and Orpah, both with husbands, both potentially married for about 10 years in Moab, and neither one with a child. Now, if you were in either one of their shoes, especially in the ancient Near East, you might begin to think, 
that it's not going to happen. That this is not going to be a part of who you are. That is procreating and having children. And for an ancient Near Eastern audience, that was a huge, massive thing. In our context, it's a huge, massive thing. And we've seen um, husbands and, and wives struggling with, with infertility and the difficulties that come along with that. And what we see just in this almost throwaway line, we've got Yahweh who shows up to the plate, the God of Israel who shows up to the plate and it says that he gives to Ruth a conception. And even though the text does not say that Ruth is barren, it's unexpected that she would have this kid. And there's a hint of new life at the end of this book where Boaz and Ruth bring a new baby boy into the world. I don't want us to forget, and I don't want to do a, a disjustice to, to the text here, but I don't want us to forget the power that God has to work in our lives. The power that, that we have when we actually pray to God that he hears us and that he answers us. And in the midst of the lowest lows, he's still there and he may be still at work. I say maybe because I know that for many couples, this is a prayer that goes unanswered. And I don't want to set the plate that if we just pray that immediately we get what it is that we want because it doesn't quite work that way. But I hope that our prayers are still laced with hope that God can work in the midst of our lives. And we see how this plays out in this story here. Uh, Catherine Sockenfeld says, God gives conception, but the marriage union would not have happened apart from a preceding sequence of extraordinary acts on the part of the human characters, most especially Ruth and Boaz. And I'd like to set this alongside of our prayers because as we pray to God that he would um, be in our, in our midst and, and to be present and to be active, there's also this sense that we see in the book of Ruth where, where God is using the faithful actions of his people to accomplish a great and powerful plan. All throughout this book, we've seen Ruth and Boaz kind of doing things in order to allow this story to progress, to even place Ruth in a situation where she can have a kid. First, she had to go and glean in the fields. First, she had to go risk it and, and go out into the fields and try to get food for her family. First, she had to go and meet Boaz. First, she had to go get uh, perfumed and showered and put on her clothes and go and lay down by his feet while he was sleeping and, and take the cover off of his feet. She had to do a lot of stuff to put herself in this place. Naomi as well had to give her this plan and to, to, to get her to go out. And Boaz had to respond in the positive way, all leading up to this moment, the one time in the book where it says that God gives Ruth a conception or God gives Ruth a pregnancy. And if all of these things in the past hadn't happened leading up to that moment, we might not have seen God act in the way that he does. And there's this tension within the story, a tension that we don't always like to talk about where God uses us to do great things. I think sometimes we've forgotten that. And the, the limits of our actions are to pray that God would supernaturally intervene, which I believe that he can do. 
But more often than not, we see a model like this where God is working through people that have taken risks for others that have demonstrated their chesed, their steadfast love and their commitment to one another so that God can work in their lives. There's a, a midrash to the story of the book of Ruth. A midrash is like a Jewish uh, interpretive retelling of this story. But the way that they understand this is Boaz did his part and Ruth did hers and Naomi did hers. Then the Holy One, then God said, I too will do mine. I think that is a beautiful way of understanding this story. This is not just you stay home like Naomi did and do nothing and wait to die. This is you take action and you begin to risk and you begin to move out and care for people. And then God will do his part. I think that's a beautiful way of thinking about this story, although I don't want to limit God's actions to that, but I think that this is an important thing for us to, to be reminded of. And this whole story just keeps coming back to this idea of chesed, faithfulness and commitment and love. One scholar says that this refers to an action by one person on behalf of another person under these circumstances. First, the action is essential to the survival or basic well-being of the recipient. Second, the action is one that only the acting person can do. Only Ruth can care for Naomi in this way. Only Ruth can have a child that will become, um, I don't want to reduce this, but will become a life insurance for them. That sounds pretty reductive, but you know what I mean. Only Boaz can be the one who steps in and meets Ruth's needs in this way. The act of chesed takes place within an existing relationship. It doesn't just come out of nowhere. And I have to think and pose this question to us as we sit here and we consider Ruth and Naomi and Boaz, what about us? Who are the people in our lives that only we can reach? Who are the people in our lives where we can meet them in a way that's not just um, superficial, but something that actually brings life and hope? Who are the people that God is waiting for us to act and to risk and to work so that he can do his part too? The story continues and the women who we saw in chapter one, when Naomi and Ruth come back to Bethlehem, the women kind of gather and they say, can that be Naomi? Reading in, look how old she looks. Look how tired she looks. Look how rough she looks. She's alone. She's empty and she's broken. And now these women have something else to say to Naomi. May the Lord be blessed who today hasn't left you, Naomi, without a redeemer. This is, this is an oddly titled book because when we hear it's the book of Ruth, we think this is a story about Ruth, but as this story kind of uh, comes back around and, and concludes, this story is largely about Naomi. And the, the women are praising Yahweh because he has not left her without a redeemer. May his name be proclaimed in Israel. He, that is actually the, the Redeemer. This is not talking about God. He, the Redeemer, will restore your life or return your life and sustain you in your old age. Literally, that's and sustain you or provide for you in your gray hairs. 
I can get on board with that as a 35-year-old that's starting to get a little white on the sides here. This redeemer will restore her life and sustain her in her old age. And, and what this is referring to is this act where Obed will be one who provides for his family, who allows them to stay rooted in the land, who allows them to, uh, to have their fields, not where they're gleaning anymore, but where they receive the produce on the land. The women continue, your daughter-in-law who loves you. We have romanticized the word love in our culture, and I don't want to do a disservice to that. However, in the Hebrew Bible, what this means is it's like an act of commitment. This, this love that is fidelity and, and commitment that is demonstrated in the way that we treat people. Your daughter-in-law who loves you, it's not just this emotional kind of butterflies in your stomach sort of feeling. It's the way that this is, this is outworked. Your daughter-in-law who loves you has given birth to this redeemer and she's better for you than seven sons. One scholar says, so high is the women's regard for Ruth that they set her even higher than the proverbial seven sons elsewhere understood as the perfect example of a blessed family. Or again, this is Catherine Sockenfeld, the placing of Ruth above the value of seven sons gives the strongest possible cultural expression of her worth in a society that placed such great value upon male offspring. To say that Ruth is worth more to Naomi than seven sons was a massive statement in this context. However, when you think about it, what Ruth has allowed Naomi to receive is nothing short of life. It's nothing short of a resurrection from the dead that has happened because Ruth has taken a risk for her mother-in-law. Now, this is where things get a little bit weird, and I don't know if you caught this the first time we were reading through it. You probably didn't because of all the technical difficulties, but it says, Naomi took the child and held him to her breast. And understand here that when Naomi has left, she has lost her two sons and her husband. And when she comes back to Bethlehem, and when all the women say, you look so tired and haggard, she says, I went away full, but God has brought me back empty. I have nothing and here what we see in this text is the filling of Naomi where she doesn't have nothing. She has this baby who takes this beautiful space right here in between your chest and your arms and anyone that has ever held a sweet little baby and smelt those beautiful smells, you know exactly what I'm talking about. There's a holiness and a life that resides right in this space and the empty, barren Naomi is allowed to have that brought back to her in this moment. In the midst of her brokenness, in the midst of grieving the loss of her children, which I can't even imagine, her two sons passing away, her husband passing away, her getting rid of all hope whatsoever, and now here in this sweet little baby named Obed, which we can say, if anybody is expecting, great name, just put that on the list, okay? In this sweet little baby Obed, she is filled again. And she becomes, the text says, his guardian, his foster mother, his nurse, his caregiver. People don't really know what to do with this. And it almost sounds like Naomi is taking the baby and stealing the baby and trying to walk out of the place with the baby. And Ruth, she can just fend for herself. That's not really what's happening. Naomi's being the stereotypical grandma 
And again, I don't want to single out people, but if you're in the room with small children and your parents are involved in helping with the raising of those children, if you've got stereotypical grandparents, you know exactly what this looks like. And I, I love going over to my mom's house because that means that I get a reprieve from my children for like 30 minutes to an hour. And I just go and I sit in that green cushy recliner where I, used, where I used to sit and rock for hours when I was like a kid reading Harry Potter novels. Like that's what I remember from that chair. And I just go and I sit and mom takes the kids and they go outside and I just have those moments. Like Naomi is being that grandmother who, who is becoming a guardian and a nurse and a caregiver. Obviously, she's not becoming a nurse in the traditional sense, even though some of the English translations um, go in that direction. The neighborhood women gave him a name saying, a son has been born not to Ruth, but to Naomi. And they called him Obed. This is the only time in the Hebrew Bible when people other than the parents name the kid, but the neighborhood women are doing this and they name him Obed, which means something to the effect of um, one who serves. There has been a radical reversal in this story from the beginning that is filled with grief and sadness and loss to the end now where Naomi, we see her snuggling little baby, Obed. And you could almost sense, as I've mentioned already, that there's this radical reversal from death to life, from hopelessness to hope, from famine to feast. And God has shown up in the lives of his people and he has allowed Ruth, he has given Ruth a conception, a miraculous conception, where here her family is made whole again. And this, this, this story, it ends with this line, he became, this is Obed, he became Jesse's father and David's grandfather. For an ancient Israelite reader, when you hear this line, this should send bells up and flags off and things are going crazy here because this is David's grandfather. This is really stinking important stuff. The fact that Ruth has risked everything and finally gotten together with Boaz and they have this miracle baby named Obed and Obed uh, continues on and he has Jesse and Jesse has David. This is like the coup de grace of the Israelite people. All of their hopes were placed in David as the good king. Now we know how that story works out. It doesn't work out too great. But what, what this story seems to be all about is this ongoing line, not just of Ruth having a baby and Naomi being restored, but also that this becomes part and parcel of David's family line. And it's a jacked up one. There's theological depth in this genealogy because as we've talked about so often, Ruth is not from Israel. Ruth is from Moab. Yet Ruth is the great-grandmother? Grandmother. She is the grandmother of David. Thank you. The Moabitess, who is part of David, one of the central figures in Old Testament history. She is part of this family. One scholar says, if you were the child of one of David's many marriages, now this is kind of the, the sordid history of King David. We might know him as the guy who defeated Goliath, but there's a, a lot of kind of, there's a lot of stuff going on. 
in his story. But if you were one of the, uh, the child of one of David's many marriages, including the adulterous and murderous one, you might be encouraged to find that your father had the story of Judah, Tamar, Perez, and also Ruth in his ancestry. These figures, they represent really odd stories in Israel's past that have produced David. Or another way of thinking about it, more generally, you might uh, well be an Israelite at this time who was inclined to idolize or idealize David, and the close of this book will give you something else to think about. David's grandmother is a foreigner. There is a theological depth to these genealogies and how I'd like to tie this back up. There's a theological depth in Jesus's genealogies. Tim read the genealogy in the book of Matthew. It's very clearly a stylized genealogy. It's set up to a specific pattern where we have um, these different sections from Abraham to David, David to exile, and then from exile uh, to Jesus. There's 14 generations in each of these. It's very clearly one that's got some theological uh, stuff under the hood here. But what's interesting for us to note is that in Jesus's genealogy, the author has included some figures in, in the past that maybe on our own standards don't seem to fit the bill. Tamar, who poses as a cult prostitute, sleeps with her father-in-law, unbeknownst to him. When the father-in-law finds out that she is pregnant, he threatens to kill her because of the penalties where she is not married, but she then reveals that he, in fact, is the father, and she has twins that become part of Obed's family tree and also Jesus's family tree. We have Rahab, the foreign prostitute who gives a hiding place to, to the Israelite spies, a foreigner that is brought into the family. We have Ruth, the Moabitess. We have Bathsheba, the one with whom David um, kills her husband and, and sleeps with her in an adulterous affair, which she may or may not have had a say in whether or not that could have happened. And we have Mary, Jesus' mom, the potentially 14 to 16-year-old girl who was pregnant and not married having to live in a society that could potentially stone her for her supposed infidelity and promiscuity. These are the people that all lead up to Jesus. And the theological depth of Jesus' genealogy, it includes us as people in the family. I don't know where it is that you guys are, and I don't know what it is that you're struggling with, but I do know that at different points in your life, you probably are not too dissimilar from the people in the post-exilic era where you say, does God even love me? Is God even invested in me? Because all I see now is destruction, and I do not feel that God is present or here with me in this place. And those questions that we ask when we look back to the genealogy that, is, that ends the book of Ruth and we see these characters who don't belong in the genealogy, 
but yet God has brought them in. Or when we look back to the genealogy of Jesus and we see these characters that have such a crazy history, but yet God has seen fit to bring them in and not only to bring them in, but to allow his son Jesus to be a part of that family tree. When we begin to doubt our own inclusion and our own acceptance, may we gain strength from these genealogies where the unlikely characters have been brought in and accepted into the family. So regardless of where you are and what you've done and what you bring with you into this space, what I want you to hear this evening is you are accepted and you are loved and you are invited in as a participant into the beautiful family tree of Jesus. That as you look across the table and you see people, you might say to yourself, well, they don't belong, and you might be right, but neither do we. And that's what this is all about. When Jesus is killed, when Jesus takes our sin to its, to its logical extreme where he, he dies as if to say, not even death can keep me from you. And then he rises from the dead, becomes victorious over that, and invites us in to participate in this new creation with him here and now. You are accepted, and you are loved, and you are invited in to participate with him to sit across the table from people that might not look like you and think like you and act like you. But in the midst of that beautiful diversity, we find family. My hope tonight is that we begin to, to live in light of that, seeing Jesus for who he is and seeing Jesus and his family tree for the ridiculousness that it offers and knowing that that includes now us and all the stuff that we bring and how Jesus has brought us in to give us life and hope and forgiveness. I hope that that gets you as excited as it does me. Because as we look around, guys, we've got work to do. And in the same way in this book of Ruth, that we have people that are taking risks so that God can act in these climactic ways, I believe that he is asking us to take risks so that he can work in this context in a way that we can't even imagine, whether that's down the street in the garden or whether that's over the, uh, across the street at the campus of SU or whether that's right here in our lives where we experience reconciliation and restoration and hope, where we see answers to prayer, where we see God investing and involving himself in our lives. When we begin to live that life of risk and committed faithfulness to one another and to God, what he can do through us is endless. May we be encouraged by that this evening. Thanks again for joining us. If you live in the Salisbury area, we invite you to visit us for one of our weekly services on Sunday evenings at 5.30 p.m. Whatever your story is, there's room for you here. And again, if you'd like more information, please visit our website at restoresby.org. Hope to see you soon.